The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. You ready, ready to get into God's Word? Okay, Luke's Gospel. Um, you knew that. It's, ne- it's never a good idea to ignore warnings, is it? Never, never a good idea to ignore warnings. Uh, if you're familiar with the city of Toronto, right at, the, right at the bottom of Toronto, right at the bottom of the downtown is Queen's Key. You're, you're familiar with this street, and there's a streetcar line that runs on, on Queen's Key. In fact, we got a, a picture here on the left there. You can see the streetcar on Queen's Key. What happens is that the streetcar actually goes into a tunnel and then makes its way up to Union Station, and... and um, and, and this, this is right on the street in the bottom right there you can see, and I'm just going to ask you right now, count up the do not enter signs on the tunnel for the streetcar on Queen's Key. How many do not enter signs do you see? I think there's five of them. There's five. I only need one to not go in a place, but, but five do not enter signs. And what you don't see, if we were able to zoom out on this picture a little bit, at the entrance, if you've ever driven down Queen's Key, you know this, at the entrance... There's also two large red stoplights. So, five do not enter signs, two big red stoplights are a pretty good set of warning signs that you and I would interpret as, don't go in the tunnel. Don't, don't go in the tunnel. Well, despite all of these warnings, in the early morning hours of February 23rd, A man drove his Mitsubishi SUV 800 meters into the tunnel, almost making it to Union Station uh, before he was hung up on the tracks. It took, I didn't show you the extraction picture, took two hours to get it out. They sent a small crane the 800 meters into the tunnel and they, they slung with chains and straps, they slung the vehicle and then kind of made their way back out of the tunnel again. Um, considerable damage to the vehicle as a result of the slinging and uh, wrecking on the tracks. The man received a $425 fine and has to deal with all the damage to his vehicle, all because he didn't heed the warnings. He didn't heed the warnings. Well, in today's passage, uh, Jesus delivers a series of warnings to his hearers, and um, you can think of this passage if you want. Think of this passage as uh, five do not enter signs and two big red stoplights. Okay, think of the passage in that, in that way. And he could see that the people he was speaking to were actually heading into a tunnel that they had no business being in, one that had dire consequences attached to going in it, eternal consequences, And if you have any interest in not missing out on the good things that God has for you, both in this life and in eternity, then we would all do well, you would do well to heed the warnings that Jesus is speaking of in this passage. Make sure you're on the right track. Make sure you're following Jesus Christ. Make sure you're headed for his kingdom, for heaven and for all the glories that await us. And you should want that. Uh, The alternative isn't great. He's going to speak of it in this passage, but you should want it simply because God is offering us a tremendous, amazing, mind-blowing gift in his kingdom. And so let's uh, pray together. We're going to work through the passage and read it as we go uh, today. We don't want to make sure we don't miss out on heaven. And so let's pray together and ask God's uh, spirit to help us. Father, as I, uh, as I think about uh, this passage and I think about what's in front of us this morning and the story of this man who drove into that tunnel, I'm sure at the time he was confused and distracted. And God, I know that those two things could easily keep us from hearing these warnings from you and from your word right now. And so God, help us uh, not to be confused, but to have the word of God clarify some things for us and help us not to be distracted, but focused and eager to hear the things that you have for it and so willing to receive your word in our lives today. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen? 
Amen. All right. You, this is a negative passage. It's a warning passage. We're going to kind of keep it that way for the outline. So this is where we're going to go. You're going to miss out on heaven. Let's start with this. If you knock on the door of religion, not faith, you're going to miss out on heaven. If you knock on the wrong door, now let's read a few verses here, uh, 22, I didn't tell you where, where we are today, this is Luke 13, 22 to 35, let's read the first few verses. Um, he went on his way, Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Someone said to him, Lord, uh, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able now, uh, by this time, they've heard Jesus do quite a bit of teaching. They've heard a lot that he had to say. Many of them are traveling around with him and hearing uh, the weight and, um, and, and, and really the soberness of the message over and over again. They're beginning to get the idea that it isn't exactly easy to follow Jesus Christ, that it's, that it's actually pretty hard. And, you know, this far in, this is message 57 in Luke's gospel, and some of you have heard all of these messages or most of these messages and you know week by week it's not getting any easier is it every week I keep coming to the passage hoping you know I hope we get a little breather this week I hope this passage this week's just a little easier and then I read it like I did this week and I go no easier just as hard a little harder and we're getting the idea that following Jesus isn't it is, it's not easy that there's a challenge associated, a weightiness uh, to all of this. And, and these people that are following Jesus around, they're, they're getting it. Because they're asking this particular question now. Because they're thinking not many people are actually going to follow Jesus because it's so hard. And so they, they, you see the question they ask. They really are asking. Um, they're wondering about this. How many people are really saved? I mean, I wonder if you ever wonder that. I, I think about it. How many people are really saved of the seven billion people that live in the world? I mean, so many of them just don't even know about Jesus. Steeped in other religions. I think about people even in the Christian West where we live. It's not very Christian anymore, by the way. But, but, but those of us who live in the West where the tradition is more Christianity, but so many are not actually following Jesus, even though they might say that they're a Christian. And I begin to kind of do the math on all of that, and I'm starting to think that not many, not many people are really getting in. And so they ask this question, will those who are saved, you see it there in verse 23, will those who are saved be few? How many people are really, really getting into, into, into heaven? And the Jewish people that Jesus is talking to, they... They had this idea, in fact, and it's such a dangerous place to live, but they had an idea, and the reason why Jesus is addressing this over and over again is because they had a, the idea that they were it. They thought that they were, as the recipients of the promise of God, kind of the, the owners of automatic salvation. That they had the promises, that the world was irredeemable, but that being a Jew was it. But over time, as they began to listen to Jesus, they were getting the idea too that the guest list, that the guest list to heaven that they thought was so rock solid, so locked in, actually wasn't quite so much locked in. That it was different than they understood it to be. That maybe just being a Jew wasn't enough to actually get you in. This really speaks to us. There is no automatic salvation because you're born into a believing family or that you have a Christian tradition or that you live in a Christian, so-called Christian nation, that none of these things are enough. There was an ancient Jewish teaching, in fact, the Mishnah, which was a collection of oral teachings that then came together in written form. It said this, this is Sanhedrin 10.1, all Israelites have a share in the world to come. And in their mind, what that meant is as long as you've done the rituals to be a good Jewish person, then you're in. You're going to heaven. Now, in the sense, we could, we could pick up on something that the Apostle Paul talked about, and you can jot down this reference in Romans eleven twenty six. 26. He talks all about Israel and their place in the future, and he makes the point there that all true Israel will be saved. But notice the qualifier he puts on that. It's not that all Israel will be saved, but that all true Israel will be saved, those who truly believe. And so we would 
of course, concur with what the Apostle Paul says about that, but in the sense that national, all of national Israel or all of ethnic Israel would be saved, we would disagree. That would be a no. Because you're not saved by your ethnicity or your, tra- or your traditions. You're not saved by your family history. Salvation is always, throughout all of history, before Jesus and after Jesus, it's always only been about one thing. The way to be saved is, and you jot down this reference too, Ephesians 2.8, that we are saved by grace through what? Faith. By grace through faith, Ephesians 2.8. And Hebrews 11 then gives us a bunch of examples that are pre-Jesus examples, Old Testament examples of people who were faithful to God. And, and how was that counted? They were true believers. They were headed for heaven, the very thing we're trying to get to. And over and over again in Hebrews 11, it tells us about them by faith, Abraham, by faith, Sarah, by faith, Moses. It's always, always about faith. Not the performance that comes with religion. And beyond it being exclusively for, for Jews, because we know that faithless Israelites were condemned by their sin and were no better than the pagans around them. And we know that faith-filled Israelites we're saved by believing the promise, as any Jew could do and any non-Jew could do. And in that same list in Hebrews 11, in fact, you have a woman who was a non-Jew who also was a believer and who went to heaven. Her name was Rahab by faith, Rahab. And beyond the list in Hebrews 11, so many non-Jewish believers who received the promise. Ruth, non-Jew, Or I think of Naaman the Syrian who believed and came and worshipped the God of the Jews. Or how about the Ninevites after Jonah preached and a whole city repented and turned to God. It's always, always been about faith. So back to the question then, understanding that, back to the question, will those who are saved be few? That's the question they asked Jesus. Now, we've done enough of Luke's gospel. Let me ask you this question. A little quiz time right here. A little quiz. Will Jesus, A, answer their question, or B, ignore their question and talk about what he wants to talk about? But what, what's it going to be? It definitely, definitely be not answering their question. He hardly ever answers the question that's put to him because he always sees that the question is misplaced and he, he need, there's something else he needs to say that's more important. And he wants to get them thinking about what, what's actually important. Their personal responsibility in light of what he's been teaching them. And so what he's really saying to them in the next few verses is, hey, how about you stop worrying about who's in and who's not in, and you start worrying about and thinking about whether or not you're in. Because it's not guaranteed simply because you're a Jew. And he said to them, verse 24, notice, strive to enter. Make, the NIV says, make every effort to enter. And at this point, the religious types, they're freaking out. They're they're freaking out every time Jesus opens his mouth because they thought they were good because of their strict adherence to the Old Testament laws. They went to synagogue on the Sabbath. They went to the temple and, and, and offered sacrifices and they made their offerings and they observed all the feasts and festivals and everything they had to do, they did. And they thought because they were good Jews in the religious sense of what that meant, doing all the rites and rituals, believing all of the tenets and memorizing the Torah, they thought they were good. But it turns out, and and this is the shocking part of all of this, because he's about to talk about the narrow door. And the shocking part about all of this is, is that, and we don't think of it this way, but religion, religion is the easy way. Religion is the wide door. The narrow door has nothing to do with religion. Religion. You see, religion is the easy way because this is the way that works out. As long as I do a few rituals 
as long as I do what I'm told, as long as I fall in under the rules, as long as I don't have to think too much about any of this, I just comply. If I tick all the religious boxes, I'm good. That's why it's the easy way. But the hard way, not the way, not the way of religion, the hard way is, is, listen, this is what it is. And earlier in chapter 13, this is what Jesus spoke of. He said, unless you repent. See, unless you repent, and we've talked about repentance over and over again. A re- repentance is agreeing with God and turning from your way of doing it to his way. Now, by the way, that has nothing to do with religion. Repenting means I need to completely alter my thinking. I need to conform my will to his. I need to follow his way, uh, not my way. Can you see how that's so much harder than just ticking a religious box? Just coming to a service, just giving an offering, just doing a little service, just saying a certain prayer, just singing a song. Those things we can do almost unconsciously but not repentance, not agreeing with God. That's so much harder. That's the narrow way. So see see what he says, verse 24 continues, strive to enter through, here's where he says it, the narrow door. Now, um, how many of you have been to uh, the scenic caves in Collingwood? You've been to scenic scenic caves? And um, these are great. I love these. Been there a few times, really enjoying uh, going up there. There's one cave there that's called um, Fat Man's Misery. <laughs> Fat Man's Min- Misery. How many people have gone through Fat Man's Misery? Yeah, it's, it's a great little cave. Now, it's, I have a picture of this here. It's, uh, this is the, the beginning of the entrance to it. It's hard to get a picture of it inside, but you kind of go in, bunch of people, if you're claustrophobic, don't even try this, okay? But you go in and you kind of stand in a long line because it takes a little while to get through that one little part where you have to twist and turn to get in and, and through it. So last time we were there, a couple summers ago, there's a very specific way to get through it. We were there with some friends. In fact, Rob Willie, some of you will remember, Pastor Rob Willie uh, from Davenport, Iowa, uh, came and he spoke here two summers ago and we went up his family's, there he is right there, and we went up his family's to go through the caves. Now, if you remember Rob, you might remember he's 6'7". He's 6'7". Uh, he's not a fat man. In fact, he's, he's kind of slender, but he's 6'7". He's That's a lot of man to get through a very small opening um, in Fat Man's Misery. And, and so right above Rob, though, it gives you the instructions on how to get through. So there's a little sign there, a little wooden sign. I'll read this for you because it's, it's hard to see there. The sign says this. Climb ladder and put your right shoulder into the opening on the right side and then proceed slowly through the 14-inch opening. Okay, that's, that's what you have to do. You have to do it precisely. Right shoulder, right side. You kind of slide your way uh, through this 14-inch opening. Rob, I had to text him to confirm how tall he was. And, and when I reminded him of this, he says, I'm still having nightmares about fat man's misery <laughs> and going through it. But listen, all six, seven of Rob Willie from Davenport, Iowa got through that 14-inch opening because he put his right shoulder through the right side and the rest of his body went in and through. You see, that's striving to enter. That's, that's making every effort in the way that, that is prescribed in order to get through that narrow opening. It's going to require effort to follow Jesus Christ. The effort that comes from agreeing with God, repenting, turning to his way, and doing it his way, exercising faith, and nothing else. Do it Jesus' way and you'll get through. Try to do it your own way. Try to put your head in first. Try to go with the left shoulder thinking maybe it would be better to put your feet in first. You're not getting through. You gotta put your right shoulder against the right side and work your way through the opening. You have to do it exactly as it's prescribed. And Jesus said, For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. It requires repentance. 
agreeing with God about everything and turning to follow him. I mean, that was my experience. I was 15 years old when I came to faith in Christ. I remember uh, that evening like it was yesterday and sitting in a darkened room at a youth event and hearing the message and the preacher talking about the emptiness in your life, which I felt, and that emptiness only being able to be filled by Jesus Christ. I remember slipping my hand up and I remember the wash that I felt come over me as I turned my life over to Jesus Christ. But something was true that night that I didn't fully understand at the time, that I, it was complete surrender. It was in that moment, not just a release from the sins and the filling of the Holy Spirit, but it required the complete reordering of my life. That my life would never be the same again. That the trajectory of my life and where I would end up would not be under my control, but under the control of the Holy Spirit. That the, that the treasures that God would give me would not be my own, but would need to be dispensed for his glory. That the talents that God has put into me wouldn't be for my own benefit, but would be for the benefit of his kingdom. That I would not choose my own way, but that he would choose these things because I would belong to him, because I agreed with him that night and I turned to follow him. And for those who have become followers of Jesus Christ in this room, it has meant giving up, in many cases, giving up the luxuries of this life, forsaking the pleasures of this world. It has meant for some of you enduring ridicule and scorn because of your faith. For some of you, we might even take a step beyond that and say that it has resulted in persecution and lost opportunity because you have loved Jesus, that you have lost friends that there has been strains in family relationships, that you didn't pursue your own course in life, but God has put you where you are because you agreed with him and you turned to follow him. You did the hard thing. You went through the narrow door. And for many in history, when you begin to think about this, for many in history, it's so reordered their life that they actually were required to give up their life for the sake of the gospel. Many, many, Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of martyrs for the sake of the gospel. Because people repented, they agreed with God and turned to follow him. That's the narrow door. That's what we're talking about here. And that's why many, as it says right here in the text, that, that's why many will seek to enter but will not be able. It's just... It's just too hard. The narrow door, of course, is Jesus Christ himself. And he's offering passage to heaven through himself. But some will not find the way because they're pursuing the way of religion and they're thinking that's enough. And the way of religion equals missing heaven. That's the first warning that he puts in front of us. Here's the second one. You're also going to miss out. Notice if you delay in coming until it's too late. He continues the illustration of the door here, but it changes a little bit to speak now of who controls the actual door. Look at verses 25 through 27. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, a Lord open to us. And then he will answer you, I, I do not know where you come from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. I do not know where you come from, or very simply, I, I don't know you. They're on the outside, banging on the door, trying to get in. They didn't realize in their lifetime that, that it was a limited time offer, that salvation's offer wouldn't be open forever. And it results in this shocking, this, this embarrassing, this painful moment where Jesus says he doesn't know you. 
Is there anything worse than not being recognized by someone who you think should know you? You know, you see an old high school friend or someone who used to live in your neighborhood or someone you used to work with and you go over to them and you, and you, you, try, you inter, go to introduce yourself and they're like, I, yeah, mm, eh. my locker was right beside yours. We sat together. We ate lunch together. I, I can't. Then they lie and say, oh, yeah, 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 because they just want to get rid of you. Now, that's embarrassing when it happens at a human level, but now, imagine now you're in heaven. You're, you're trying to get in. And you're, you're, you're trying to get in. Jesus said, I'm, I don't, I don't, Jesus says, I don't know you. Now, I can assure you of this, that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you've turned, agreed with him and turned towards him and followed him, that's never gonna happen. It's never gonna happen to you. I love some of the assurances we have in the scripture. Second Timothy 2, 19, Paul writes, the Lord knows those who are his. Isn't that awesome? The Lord knows those who are his. Over in 1 Corinthians 8, 3, if anyone loves God, do you love God? If anyone loves God, he's known by God. Or that great chapter in John 10 where Jesus is talking about himself being the shepherd and, and, and us being the sheep. He says, I, I know my own and my own know me. And my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And you know, no matter what's going on in your life right now, if you love Jesus, if you're following him, if you've gotten yourself to that place, no matter what's going on in your life, whatever pain you're facing, whatever loss has happened to you, whatever trial you're going through right now, whatever grief you're bearing, isn't just awesome to know that Jesus not only knows about that, but he knows you. And, and, and that he's walking with you through all of this and that he's having, having known you and walked with you, that he's strengthening you for this journey, this painful journey you're on. And, and then at the end of the day, he's waiting for you, preparing a place for you in this awesome place called heaven. Whatever's going on in your life today, if you love him, he knows you and he's with you. There's a lot riding on all of this. Robert Stein said, one's ultimate destiny is determined by whether Jesus will say on the final day, I know you. And for some in this room, you don't have that assurance right now. You're, you're not exactly certain that if you were to die at this moment and you were to go and stand at that door and you were to knock, whether or not it would be open to you. You don't know if Jesus is gonna say, I know you, come on in. And, and my heart would be that before you leave this place today, if you don't have that assurance, if you can't say, rock solid, I believe that's gonna happen. Jesus knows me, I know him. If you can't say that, I would pray before you'd leave here today that you'd get that settled. Don't spend another day wondering if that's gonna happen. But those who were really in that place of not being known by God, they begin to push back on him. Verse 26, you can see it here. They begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. We were so close to you. Don't you remember? We hung out together. We were right there listening to you. Now they're coming with their excuses and their arguments. And Jesus says back to them, I tell you, I don't know where you come from. I don't know who you are. You need to depart from me, all you workers of evil. I don't think that they're like particularly evil. They're just sinners. They're just sinners. They're anybody who has not reconciled themselves to God and received the gift of salvation he offers is evil. And so despite their pleas, they're not getting in. And we've circled around this already a few messages ago, but there's no doubt that God is in control of who gets in the door. Amen? Agreed with that? God is in control of who gets in the door. 
and how long the opportunity to enter that door lasts. And the door's not going to be open forever, but some people are betting on it still being open to them, even though they're not doing anything about it. They're not heeding the warnings. That somehow, because of some aberrant belief, some aberrant theology that they have, they believe that it's going to be okay. Young people in this room who have not surrendered to Jesus Christ, you're, you're, you're banking on the fact that you're going to live forever because somehow when you're young, you think you're invincible. You think you're never going to die. You think that life is like super long. And let me tell you, it's not. You think that at some point down the road, you're going to be able to kind of wrap things up in a nice, tidy little bow with God. I'm just going to live my life the way I want to live it. And then some point, somewhere along the line, when I'm older, I'll get religion. I'll get Jesus. And that's a bad plan on its face because honestly, you don't know if you're going to make it home this afternoon. You have no idea. Or some people believe that God is so merciful, I just believe he's going to let everyone in. I mean, at the end of the day, I just don't believe there's a hell. I don't believe he's really going to send anybody there. Well, uh, you're making that up. You're making that up. Or some people think they're going to, you know, they're going to get a second chance. You know, once I get, to, once I get there, I'm just going to have a talk with God. I'm going to work it out with him. You know, he's going to like slide open that little thing in the door and we're going to have a conversation through the door and I'm going to convince him. I'm going to actually tell him, you know, I've, I've kind of, I've thought about this, God. I really have. And I know I did some bad things. I mean, everybody does. I've done some bad things. But then there was all this over here that I did. You know, I, I did go to church and I gave some offerings and I was a reasonably good person. You know, I had like some moral standing. I certainly wasn't as bad as my neighbor. And you think you're going to talk it out with him. You think, you think heaven's a negotiation. And it's not. It's not at all. And, and, then, and then there's this last one. Then there's this like, um, there's a certain church group who believes in a thing called purgatory. I won't say who they are. It might be obvious. That somehow if I could just, you know, once I die, I'm just gonna go to a place and burn off the sins and then I'll get to heaven. And, and once again, if the authority is God's word, if this is the authority, uh, no mention of purgatory in this book. They're, they're not going to burn off. It's going to take all eternity for them to burn off, and they're not going to burn off. Too many betting on that door being open to them, but not based on anything authoritative. By then it's going to be too late, and the door's going to be shut to you if that's your plan Grace is abounding. Grace is abounding right now. Don't miss out on what God has for his faithful ones. Do not delay. All right, here's another way you might miss out. And it really plays out of that one if you assume that your own way is the right way. Let's read a few more verses, 28 to 30. In that place, remember verse 27, he said, depart from me, all you uh, workers of evil, Okay, where they're departing to is a place called hell. Verse 28, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And the people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. Now, um, there's a lot that's at stake here. We have a description of hell. It's necessary in this passage in order to get our attention and show us the seriousness with which Jesus is speaking here about these warnings. This is how serious it is. There's a place coming up here for you. You don't want to go. And we have a description here, one of many descriptions of this place called hell. I don't know if all these descriptions are metaphorical of that very real place called hell, if they're all just meant to be descriptive in ways that we could understand. But what I'm getting from this here is that hell is a place of torment and pain. And that 
Part of that is that the separation exists between us and God. And when we're in hell, when someone is in hell, when they haven't received the gift of salvation, they can actually see in the text, it says, they can see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They somehow, people in hell, can see the glory and the bliss and the pleasures and the awesomeness of heaven from where they are. That would be torment. That would be awful. And if you're counting on doing it your own way, you're going to end up there. You're going to end up painfully regretting your decision for all eternity. And while you're in eternal torment, look at verse 29. These people are going to come from east and west and from north and south. They're going to recline at the kingdom of God. People, this is, and to the Jews, this was like a slam because they thought they were it. Maybe, maybe one or two Gentiles and pagans would come to faith in Yahweh, maybe a few here and there. But now what Jesus is saying is they're actually going to flow in from north and south and east and west, from all the people groups, all the languages, all the ethnicities, of people all over the world are going to come to heaven. To a Jew, this is stinging. And, but for us, listen, people who you thought were not going to make it to heaven are going to make it. And people who you thought were making it to heaven aren't going to be there. See, this is, this is God's upside down kingdom. This is why Jesus is so provocative and so controversial in his teaching. This is why the religious leaders were so upset because what he's saying is people who are the outcasts and the, and the, the prostitutes and the weak and the poor and the lame, the people we disregard, the tax collectors, the Gentiles, people from every language and every race, they're going to get in. This, this is the proverb in verse 30 that Jesus speaks here. This is the last, the last, those who are last in this life will be first. They're, going to, they're getting to heaven. They're going to be in first place. And when it comes to heaven, there's only first and last place. They're going to get in. And, and, and the elite, the religious leaders, the, the self-righteous ones, the religious people, the teachers, the priests, they're refused entry. Back to the proverb, those who are first, they're going to be last. You, you had it all great in this life. You thought you had it all spit and polished and it was going so, you, last. And of course, all of that is a general principle because some religious leaders will find do get it. And do come to faith and practice their religion, but from a really faith-filled place. And not everybody on the margins just automatically gets in. They still have to be saved. We, we said already, it's, it's always only about grace through faith. And so if you think you're smarter than God and can make your own way to the kingdom, you need to stop to consider this warning. You need to stop ignoring what his inspired word say, says. Because your way is not the right way. All right, ready for the last one or have you had enough? Because I got a fourth one loaded up here and I know that that seems like a lot already, right? Number four, ready to go? All right, here we go. You're gonna miss out on God's kingdom if you resist the Lord's loving plan to save you. I actually love this one a lot. Verse 31, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, and, and, and these were, you know, the Pharisees are like the bad guys in the Gospels, right? The Pharisees are like always there, always opposing him. But there were some Pharisees. This was a group of people. They had a certain set of beliefs within Judaism. But, but there were some Pharisees who actually believed in Jesus and followed him. And, and this evidently was, was a, some, some um, sympathetic religious leaders who had genuine concern for him. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here. Herod wants to kill you. They want him to be safe. They're, they're appreciating his teaching. They don't want it to come to an end. And he said to them, verse 32, and go tell that fox. This is, he's referring to Herod. And uh, by referencing a fox, he's calling him, he's, he's a cunning deceiver. He, he had murdered John the Baptist. There wasn't much good inside Herod, for sure. 
He said to them, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. Nothing's going to stop my mission to offer salvation, help, and healing to those who need it. Nothing's going to stop God's plan to show his love to sinful humanity. I'm doing this. And then he says this, and the third day, and the third day I finished my course. Now, do you think that's just random? He talks about the third day. Think that's random or not so random? You see, you, see, you got to remember that when you're reading the Gospel of Luke, Luke wrote it to a single person. He, he wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, parts one and two of the story of Jesus and the church. He wrote it to a man named Theophilus. And so he wrote the whole thing. Theophilus was already a believer. He already knew the whole story. He already knew about the resurrection and all of that. And so when Luke says, I'm going to include this little part, this thing that Jesus said and the Spirit's inspiring him, he puts this in, this reference to the third day. I mean, when Theophilus is reading it, he's of course thinking resurrection resurrection the resurrect remember that other third day and Jesus is talking here about completing his course on the third day it's obvious allusion to the resurrection and in fact he started this passage verse 22 you can look back there where he talks about the journey to Jerusalem and the whole gospel of Luke in fact is moving toward this climactic point the first four chapters were about the nativity from chapters 4 through 9 we had the ministry in Galilee from chapters 9 through 19 which we're in right now is this long journey to Jerusalem and all the teaching and all the healings that happened along the way and then from 19 through 24 to the end is the passion the crucifixion of Christ the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ. Everything is moving us in the gospel, is moving us toward Jerusalem, toward that singular event of history. When God demonstrated his love toward us, while we were still sinners, and Christ died for us, and was resurrected to new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means when he says that he's going to finish his course on the third day. That's the full expression of God's love moving toward us. So see what he says, verse 33. He says, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. I have to do this. I'm determined to do this. This is a statement of Christ's will. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. I intend to die. I'm going to Jerusalem. That's the place where it's going to happen. And you see his heartbroken love for the city, for the people. Verse 34, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, a city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. A city that runs through all the warning signs Every red light, every do not enter, every time I said someone to tell you, you killed them. How often, he says, would I have gathered, here's the tenderness, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings when, when the fox is coming near, when the dangers are at hand. I had every desire for you to come like little chicks would with a mother head and tuck themselves right underneath her so that you wouldn't even know they were there. But notice how that love is spurned. And some here need to hear this because you have spurned God's love. You are not willing. What God is offering you have refused. And the consequences are dire. Verse 35, behold, your house is forsaken. For the Jews, this was a reference. When Jesus was speaking this, the temple was still intact. By the time Luke is writing his gospel, the temple has been destroyed. In AD 70, the Romans had had enough of the rebelliousness of the Jewish people and they went in and they knocked the temple flat. Their house was forsaken. For us, though, you know what it means? Back to the early part of the passage. It, I don't know you. You're not part of this family. Your house is forsaken. And in a glimpse into events that are as yet future to us, Jesus says, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is coming at the end of the age at Jesus' return. By which time, for many, 
it'll be too late. And this is this exactly like um, in Philippians 2, 10 and 11, you know this great confession, but it's what we would call a forced confession. In Philippians 2, 10 and 11, it's every knee will bow. Every believing knee, every unbelieving knee will bow. And every tongue will confess, every believing tongue and every unbelieving tongue will confess what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a forced confession. By this point, yes, everybody's saying it and everybody knows it. But not everybody's saying it willingly. Not everybody's saying it because they believe it and because they love him. And Jesus is saying, here's the warning sign, do not resist him. Thomas Watson was a Puritan preacher in the 1600s and it's interesting to me how, how closely that society mirrors our own and how all of the issues are exactly the same from 400 years ago in England. But here's a summary of what he saw hindering true repentance, agreeing with God and turning toward him. This is the narrow door. Are any of these things true of you? Are you resisting the Lord's deep, saving love for you? Are you counting on religion rather than repentance to save you? And so he, he wrote, Watson wrote these barriers to repentance, what I'm gonna call the top 10 reasons why you won't repent. Let me give you these. Number 10, top 10 reasons why you won't repent. Number 10, there's no need to. You know, I'm basically a good person. This is I'm basically a good person. As I said earlier, this is the, um, I'm weighing out the bad with the good and there's more good than bad and so um, I don't really need to repent. Or number nine, it's easy to repent. Sin is easy and repenting is easy. I sin, I tell God I'm sorry for that and off I go with my life. And easy repentance is no repentance. You haven't agreed with God at all. Or number eight, in contrast to that, it's too hard to repent. I'm, I'm just too lazy. I don't, I don't wanna do the hard work of getting right with God. And Watson said this uh, to that point, they had rather go, go sleeping to hell than weeping to heaven. And God would have us make every effort, strive to enter. Or number seven, top 10 reasons why you won't repent. Number seven, I'm under grace. And we, we are under grace and grace is awesome and it's abounding today as I said. In Romans 6, Paul deals with this. In fact, this is what we know and Paul's addressing, um, you know, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Is that amazing? Wouldn't you want more grace? Don't you want more of God's grace? Okay, so the logic went, if you want more of God's grace, you ought to sin more. More sin, more grace. Doesn't that, doesn't that sound like that's the way it works? And, and Paul said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? God forbid, how shall we who are dead to sin continue any longer uh, therein? Number, uh, number six, I, this is where it gets real. I like my sin. I like it. Maybe you're sitting here right now and say, I don't want to really deal with that sin. I kind of like it. Watson said, the sinner thinks there is danger in sin, but there's also delight. And the danger does not terrify him as much as the delight bewitches him. Number five, I want to be happy. And the, the idea here is that uh, repentance is a uh, killjoy. That if I repent, I will no longer have fun. That the followers of Jesus Christ who are genuinely living for him just flat out don't have fun. Watson says to this, repentance does not crucify but clarifies our joy. Repentance does not take away a Christian's music but raises it a note higher and makes it sweeter. And that is true and I have found that true. Number four, this is sad but many believe this, I am beyond God's reach. I won't repent because I, I just believe God won't forgive me. I believe that what I have done, what's happened in my life, is so heinous that God will not forgive me. Watson said, remember, great sins have been swallowed up in the sea of God's infinite compassion. And in fact, I would add, this is actually God's specialty. The deeper you are in your sin, this is his best work, pulling you out of that and giving you of the redemption that he promises through Jesus Christ. There's no sinner who is beyond the reach of God. Number three, I'm counting on God being patient with me. 
And, um, and God is patient, amen? God is long-suffering. I think all of us have certainly experienced that, but God's patience is for your repentance, not for your sin. God's giving you time, but don't presume upon it. Number two, I'm afraid of what people will think of me if I repent. And we need to think, well, just very simply, we need to think more about what God thinks of us, amen? Maybe we, we should be concerned with what God thinks, not with what others think. And then the number one uh, reason why you won't repent, I just enjoy the world so much. The world so engrosses, Watson said, the world so engrosses men's time and bewitches their affections that they cannot repent. They had rather put gold in their bag than tears in God's bottle. Instead of dying repenting, they will die laughing. Don't resist his loving plan to save you. Don't resist it. God loves you. And he's extending a hand to you right now. Agree with him. Turn to him. Heed these warnings. And don't miss out on all the beautiful things that he has for you if you turn to him. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, your benefits uh, to us who have followed you and who have received the gift of salvation, they're, they're overwhelming, really. Jesus, you said that you have come that we might have life and have it to the full, the abundant life. And so, God, we thank you for the freedom that we have by the forgiveness of our sins, the release from the chains that held us. Thank you for the release from guilt and shame and fear. That's what you have for us. And why would we, why would we spurn that? Father, you've given us identity. You've called us sons and daughters. You know who we are. You know us. And we know we're loved and we don't need to go looking for that anyplace else. And we have a purpose. We're not wondering why we're here. That's the abundant life. And then beyond all of that, God, you've promised us so many really unimaginable things in the next life. Eternity with you, which includes no more sorrow and no more pain, no more death. Can't imagine. And yet you've promised it to us. God, we don't want to miss out on, on any of that. And so, God, there's probably some people in this room that need to make sure that's the program that they're on, that they've agreed with you about all of these things and turned to follow you. And others, God, in this room need to surrender completely. They've never even considered these things. And they're hearing these warnings maybe for the first time in a fresh way, and they're understanding it. And God, May this moment be their moment to come to faith in Christ. And by your Holy Spirit, convince them in this moment and show them the way of life. Father, thank you again for your patience with us and your love toward us, for all that you've provided us in this life and beyond. We thank you in Jesus' name. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.